0: Sometimes in life, you have to find out what you don't want to do before you figure out what you do want to do. And that's definitely part of our guest story this month on Write You a Song. (laughs) Welcome in, Write You a Song is a production of Bonneville Communications International and produced at the studios of KNCI Radio in Sacramento, California. I'm Tom Maley. Follow me on Twitter at KNCI Tom for podcast updates. And if you like the podcast, take a moment and give it a review. Share it, too, with anyone you know who thinks songwriters are, like, the most underappreciated people in music. And yet, it took an appearance on NBC's The Voice for this month's guest, Nicole Gallion, to realize that... She didn't really like being on stage, which helped her realize that her creative focus should be locked in solely on songwriting. And it was the right choice. Just two years after her voice appearance, she won a CMA for Miranda Lambert's Automatic. And in 2015, she won an ACM for Miranda and Keith Urban's We Were Us. She's had several number ones and over a dozen other hits, including... Oh, to myself, to myself, yeah. Pretty good for a girl from a small town in Kansas who never thought songwriting would be her path until that 2012 season of The Voice when she was picked to be part of Adam Levine's team. Let's get her story right now on Write You a Song. Nicole Gallian, thank you for joining us today on Write You a Song. Appreciate it very much. Thanks for having me. And you are, I think, the the second or third songwriter Uh, that I've had on here that really didn't grow up thinking they wanted to be a songwriter necessarily. And another one of those people happens to be your husband, Rodney Clausen. Coincidence?
1: (laughs) You know, I just think, I don't know if it's a coincidence. I could probably come up with a reason that sounded like it made sense in hindsight, maybe why we have that in common. But, um, I just don't think that we knew. I don't think either of us knew that that was a thing that was possible. I don't think we realized that that was a
0: job. It is just so interesting um, that, that you two found each other. And like Rodney, from at, at, when he was on, he was talking about how he just had a friend who was in Nashville who realized being around songwriters that he talked like them and that he might make a good songwriter. And then how did you realize that you might have a, 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 an ability to write songs?
1: Well, when I, you know, I went to Belmont. I, I went to Belmont, and that's what got me to Nashville um, in 2002. And I started giving some piano lessons as just a way to pay the bills, my freshman year of college. And through that job, I I ended up uh, giving some piano lessons for some kids of parents who worked in the music business, and they knew that I wanted to be in the music business in some capacity. So I started getting invited to some parties like events at people's houses they're like hey come network come meet some people and it's pretty common in nashville as you know for people to start passing a guitar around in the living room and people would play songs that they had written and the very first time that i ever saw what they call a nashville a guitar poll, which is a fancy way for saying people playing songs they wrote right um i i just thought to myself I think I can do that and I really thought to myself I have to try that. Um and it wasn't because I thought I'd be good at it. I was so I was such a writer growing up, not a songwriter, but I had written in any any opportunity I had to write, even, you know, in the summers I would write the copy for our hometown newspaper. That was one of my summer jobs. Hmm. So I just loved I loved words. And so then when I found out that that was such a big part of Nashville, once I got there, I was like, oh, my gosh, I have to I have to do this. So but, that- I, but it took a long time for me to really own that and say that that was what I wanted to do for my job or for a living. I just was so curious to try to go write songs.
0: Right, because you originally went to Nashville. You thought you wanted to do artist management and then – you saw these people doing a guitar pull, and did it just did it just look fun to you? Was that like the the, the beginning and end of it? If it was just looked like something fun to try,
1: fun, and also I think I just knew myself and knew that I could write, hmm. and it, that sounds that sounds kind of arrogant, but it really wasn't arrogant. It was more just knowing myself and knowing that I was I always excelled in any opera, any chance I got to write, whether it was creative writing or poetry or essays, or I was the yearbook editor, like anything that I could write literary journal I was in charge of in high school. So like, I just knew, well, Oh, I want to write that. I want to write something like that. And um, so I think that's kind of how I knew um, that I had to go do it.
0: Were you a country music fan growing up?
1: Yes. So that it was really a perfect storm because I was a super fan of country music. I grew up writing. Like I was that kid that if if a teacher said, write three sentences about the circus, I would write three pages. Like I was just, <laughs> I couldn't stop writing. Um, and then I also grew up playing classical piano very seriously. Um, I did competitions. I played, I did concerto competitions and all of that stuff on the classical side. So once I got that itch to try to write, I had the, the instrumental foundation be, you know, to go sit in the room by myself and, you know, accompany myself and come up with chords and all of that.
0: Do you remember the first song that you actually wrote?
1: Let um, me think. Yes, it, it was called Naive, which is ironic because <laughs> <laughs> I
0: was. <laughs> and did you feel like after you finished it that? that it was like as good as anything that you were hearing on the radio or did you realize that, okay, I need to work on things a little bit?
1: No, I actually, um, I was so fast and furious about wanting to write. I wrote four songs in, I think a weekend Mm. by myself in the practice rooms at Belmont. And, um, one was called naive. One was called so cruel or cruel, I think. And then, I forget what they were all called, but there was one song and they were all horrible. I mean, now they're all trash and it didn't <laughs> take me very long to get like, you know, in the beginning, you you seem to get better pretty quickly because you have nowhere else to go but up from the first few songs that you write. But in that batch of that first batch of four songs, there was one song that seemed to kind of like resonate with people. And it was a song that I had written about my dad building our house my dad was a builder and a construction worker growing up and so he built this house that i grew up in and it was just called the house that dad built and um not to be confused with the greatest song of all time the house that built me <laughs> right which is the way it should have been written but i remember when i played all those four songs for people that was the one that resonated and I i learned quickly that the reason that one worked was because it was real it wasn't mm-hmm. really just about my feelings it was about It was about people. It was about my real story. It was about life, and it was very. And I think even if I don't even have a copy of that song, someone does somewhere on a CD. But um, it's long. It's long been lost in hard drives. But I I would dare to say that if I went and played that, if you heard that song today, it would make sense that I that it was the same writer that maybe like wrote some of the songs that ended up being successful for me because I think that was like the very first little. Insight to oh, this is what you actually do well.
0: Right. So it, it sounds so, like yeah. that that song you recognized was something.
1: Yes it yes it made someone feel something. Mm-hmm. It wasn't still wasn't a great song, but I I felt like it it did what a song should. It was starting to do in a very very elementary way. Do what a song
0: should do, which is hold your
1: attention make you feel something, make you think about your life, all of those things.
0: Yeah. You have a, a quote that is really similar to your husband's, a, a, another parallel you guys have. Gee, I wonder how you ended up together. Um, and I it probably is,
1: stole it from him. So
0: that's why. <laughs> well, he, he puts it a little more uh, tersely. Yours is, you had to be bad at songwriting for a very long time. And anybody coming to Nashville uh, and starting out as a songwriter, they should just anticipate that they're going to have to be bad for a long time. Your husband puts it differently. Dare to suck, just. <laughs> uh, but th- yeah. they're basically, saying the same thing. You're gonna have to go through and, and just be trashy before you start finding little nuggets that are worth something.
1: Yeah, and I think that that's, you know, I I think to that point, one one thing that I talk about a lot with younger writers that ask. Like when I speak at Belmont or a school or something about writing, I say, you know, if you are truly, from from in my opinion, if you truly are a songwriter and that's what you're meant to do, you're going to have good taste when it comes to music. You're going to have a good taste of like what a good song is, the things you like to listen to mm-hmm. are probably good songs. And there's going to be, and whatever that bar is for your taste, there's going to be a long time Likely years and years where you aren't like the songs that you write don't don't um, are not don't live up to your taste. Mm -hmm. So you're going to be dissatisfied and you have to for a while with the songs you write, because, you know, if you are intrinsically, if you are meant to be a songwriter, you know what a good song is. Mm -hmm. And. You also will know I'm not writing good enough songs yet for for a long time, and I think that that I think that that really separates the ones that have it have the grit to be able to to make it and the ones that don't because it's a really uncomfortable space to be to sit in that space for several years of going, I just keep making things that I know that don't that don't reach my that aren't good enough for my taste yet,
0: right right. That's and also, you don't
1: know what what's missing yet. You just have to keep writing to write through that period.
0: But it's interesting because you are also learning to rely on yourself and your gut.
1: Mm-hmm. So and, yes, a hundred percent. And um, and your gut can also tell you that's not good enough. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I think it's it is it is listening to yourself and saying just because it's not good enough yet doesn't mean that it won't be, and it doesn't mean that. Um, you won't be have a career doing it. It just means you have to keep working and honing your craft. I mean, we're not talking about like making a paper airplane here. Like we're talking about something that very few people in the world statistically end up making a living doing.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And um, and it's because it's like a little little niche, you know. Career and there, there's just not a, a lot of artists, and there aren't a lot of spots on records, and it's highly competitive. And if you really, really, really want to fulfill that dream of getting one of those cuts, you're gonna have to just like buckle up and just get really, really, really good.
0: What was the first song that 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 you wrote where you thought this could be recorded by somebody, and did it get recorded mm-hmm. by somebody?
1: So I wrote a song. Probably, which by the way, like in the first, probably three to four, probably the first three years that I was a songwriter, I only wrote by myself. And I wrote a song called Right About Now, about a year in, maybe it wasn't a year, maybe it was about six months into writing songs. And it was, I wrote it around my birthday, like the first birthday that I was not, at, living at home in Kansas and I was away in Nashville and it was just like the song that was about right about now the corn's about six feet high right about now like I'd give anything to be in my hometown gotcha. um, and um, actually at the time because of a, an assistant job that I had had I I had um, become pretty good friends with John Rich who was You know, this was like right as Big and Rich was getting their record deal. Gretchen was getting her record deal. And John, um, I worked for John's agent. And so he had heard some of these songs that I was writing. And he actually um, offered to do a single song publishing deal agreement with me on that one song. He's like, he wanted to do it basically just a one song deal to try to get that song cut for me. And, um, ultimately I didn't do that deal because at the time it was the best song that I had. Um, and I still am glad that I didn't do that deal. Um, not because of John or anything, but because I just wanted to bet on getting a full publishing deal, an exclusive deal down the road. And it was a few years later that I eventually got that. But the fact that he offered me that deal, let me know that that song was worthy of being cut. Um, should the stars align and the, all the luck and all of the things, the other things that have to go into it? But I—that was the first time that I thought, in terms of song quality, that I had made something that could actually be on a record.
0: What's interesting about you too is that uh, in 2012 you were on The Voice and you were on Adam Levine's team, and you said afterwards, after uh, you you were off the show, that. That appearance, because you have a marvelous voice, you're a great singer, and um, oh, thank you. uh, Yeah, but you said you realize that show made you realize that you'd rather be a songwriter than a performer. Mm Hmm.
1: Yeah, I never grew up um, with aspirations of being on stage. I was always on stage, over to the side as the accompanist for the girls that were singing. Um, that was something that I did a lot in church. Like the girls who were vocalists, you know, singing hymns, like I would practice with them and I would play for them. I So I was, I was used to being on stage. Like I was kind of in the orbit of performance, but I wasn't out front and center and I never wanted to be, um, you know, and my goal in Nashville, I, you know, what I knew at my core was that I was a creator, um, that I was a writer. Um, and, but then like, Five, six years into my publishing deal, nobody was cutting my songs. And, you know, I'm, you know, it's that like definition of insanity just keep doing the same thing, hoping for a different result. And I, so I was like, well, maybe I need to open my mind a little bit. I'm young enough. Um, I can play piano. I can sing okay. I can, you know, um, I think I have a bit of a creative edge. So I'd kind of convinced myself to consider trying to I was like if nobody else is going to record my songs maybe I need to just go record them and that's how my songs are going to get heard but but my motivation for trying to be an artist was never to because I wanted to perform it was because I just wanted my songs heard mm-hmm. and so that I got into that mindset and then through that I kind of put together a band and was trying to teach myself how to perform at these little dive bars in Nashville and Through word of mouth, I had gotten recommended to try out for The Voice, and that's kind of how I ended up on the show. But it wasn't because I was, like, banging down the doors. I hadn't trying to be an artist. I had never even, like, taken a meeting with a label, I don't think, at that point. Um, But going and doing The Voice, I have said, is like the butterfly effect for me because if you take The Voice out of my story, I don't know that I would be here today because it really gave me clarity and affirmed that I really was a songwriter. I had a bit of an epiphany through the process, which I loved doing the voice. It was the scariest thing I've ever done. And I think that's probably why I loved it because I use my fear as a compass. And it's like the things that scare me are usually what I i am like. Well, I should probably go do it then.
3: Every now and then I get a little lost. My strings all get tangled. The wires do get crossed, and I just thank God you're here. Cause when I'm a bullet shot out of a gun, and when I'm a firecracker coming on down, and when When I'm a bullet shot out of a gun And when I'm a firecracker coming undone And when I'm a fugitive ready to run All oh, out, and crazy Baby, you save me
1: But when I got back from The Voice, I had this epiphany of it wasn't that I wasn't going to do music. It was, oh, you're a creator, not a performer, Um, because there were a lot of things about being on that show that I learned that were soul sucking. Like, I don't want someone to ever tell me to just sing a song for the sake of singing a song. I don't get any pleasure out of singing songs in front of people, (laughs) period, let alone like not my own. So that was, a, you know, that was a learn. That was an that was something I learned, and um, and I think that it taught me just to be brave. So when I came back to Nashville, I just felt, I was like, if I can do that, I can do anything. Like the simple act of writing a song and going on Music Row, I was like, I just felt like I belonged on Music Row more than ever. And I still, this it's been almost ten years now. That was two thousand twelve. I I still can't quite articulate it. In like one sentence, why the voice was was what it was for me, but but it um, it was pivotal for sure.
0: No, it absolutely. It, you can just hearing that story, you can you can see sort of the artist that you've become develop. And um, you also made some really important connections too. You work, you met Ray Lynn and and helped work with her on her debut album. And you also met Miranda Lambert, who you've uh, written a, a few pretty good songs with over the last several years.
1: Yeah, that is the other piece of the butterfly effect was <laughs> um, was that it, if, it, if not for The Voice, I don't know, you know, I don't know if um, I don't know if my first few hits would have happened because you know, Automatic was my second number one with Miranda and obviously there's the there's the tie-in there with Miranda to The Voice but I'm pretty sure that the day we wrote Automatic, Miranda asked me, She, I think being with her, and that was the very first time we had written, was the day we wrote Automatic, and she, I think being with her had jogged her memory, and she she was like, I need to check back in with Keith on that song that I sang on of yours, because she had sung on We Were Us, mm-hmm. but no one had gotten word if it was actually ever going to be on the record or anything, and So, you know, just something little like that could have made all the difference of her going, you know what, I'm going to call Keith and ask him what's going on with that song.
3: Rearview crosses, railroad ties. Oh, Hail Mary's, Friday nights. Heartbeat, baby, low beam lights. God, I miss when you were mine back when that song.
1: Those two songs ended up being my first two hits, so it's you know who's to say.
0: And the other thing, what would have happened? Even though all of that had happened, and you, you and you were working with Raylan, and you and you had kind of some some inside connections, and of course your husband was was is a writer and was a writer at that time. Um, you were saying that when you sat down to write "Automatic." with uh, Miranda, you had a brand new baby and you were right at a point in your life where you were starting to think, you know what, maybe I should go be a mom.
1: Yes. I um, you know, I'm a pretty spiritual person and I I had really I had really strong feelings when I was pregnant that if you know that A, if I could get pregnant and have a baby, that I was gonna give all of my energy to that for a while. And at that point I had not had a song on the radio yet, so I was very realistic about what that looked like. If I stepped back and took some time off from writing to be a full-time mom, I knew the reality was that I was taking myself out of the game on some level, and I also, on a spiritual level, felt like, you know what, God, if you hand me this baby and everything in my being says that I don't ever want to go to work again. I'm going to give myself permission to do that because I've given this town at that point, almost 10 years. And well, right at 10 years, actually. And I felt like I I had reconciled the idea of like having peace with walking away because I knew that I had really worked as hard as I could. I didn't have any regrets. Um, and I had committed to take three months off of writing to stay home um, from maternity leave. And three weeks in, I got the phone call to write with Miranda for the first time. And um, a, I didn't have that feeling when I became a mom that I was for sure supposed to stay home full time. It just wasn't like that wasn't genuine for me. I thought I was open to that to feeling that way. But I, I you know, I didn't. I, I was like, oh, I think I'm still a songwriter, maybe. Um, and then when I got the opportunity right with Miranda and er- everything just started like snowballing, like immediately, like my career just, I felt like it just like shot off like a rocket. And I was like, really right now? Okay. <laughs> but it was, it really was the, um, like, everything changed for me. It felt like overnight when we were us came out and I was like, okay, now I'm, you know, I just, I didn't know. I, and I didn't really know how to be a successful songwriter, without being a mom because it happened at the same time and so I never really so, so that was kind of a gift because I had some built in boundaries I didn't get ahead of like I didn't like get too far ahead of myself because I was just in such a like grounding season of life when you have a newborn or just a kid in general you're just so grounded that as some of these songs started popping off and good things were happening um, it was a really cool balance of you know, nursing a baby and also trying to like have my head in the clouds at the same time.
3: Quarter in a payphone, drying laundry on the line, watching sun tea in the window, pocket watch, but time. Seems like only yesterday I'd get a blank cassette, record the country countdown, cause I couldn't buy it. all the way to Dallas just about
0: writers in Nashville. In fact, I just, uh, the podcast previous to this one, I talked to James Slater and we talked a little bit about composing on piano and how there there used to be, it seems like, more people who wrote on piano in Nashville. And now, gosh, in the last 20 years, I could think of like maybe Phil Vassar, um, Mr. Slater, yourself. Do you, is that an accurate read?
1: Yeah, I mean, we're definitely the minority. Um, but you know who is um, a piano player first in the room for the most part is Ashley Goyley. And a lot of people don't mm. know that. Wow. He's, um, you know, arguably the most successful songwriter of our generation. And he plays piano. Um, and in fact, when I very first started taking publishing meetings and I was playing people piano vocals of just me singing with my little keyboard, you know, in my bedroom, those little recordings, they were like, you kind of remind us of when... Like young Ashley Gorley, which, wow, like I even like shudder at the thought of comparing myself to him because he is Ashley, he is the Ashley Gorley, but he is another piano player. Um, But he, yeah, I think it, um, I think it gives you some different melodic skills and um, I have a pretty thorough understanding of theory that I think like some people that just come to Nashville and only know like the Nashville number system might know you know um which that's really all you do need to know but it is nice to be able to like use some terms in the studio occasionally with someone you know like to understand like how to read music and all that is feels kind of like a little secret superpower sometimes because i don't i rarely and i have to say this i rarely write on piano anymore um but i play when i go to when i go play at the bluebird or play a show you know like a listening room or a writer's round um, I, I I sit down at the piano and learn them on the piano now because I'm mainly writing with producers.
0: Right, and and when you say you're not writing with piano, you're you're writing with tracks that have already been created. How does that does that help, or uh, I don't know, it probably doesn't hinder because you've written some huge hits that way. But how is it different as a composer?
1: Um, well, for me personally, I think that you know this this um, I guess it started about. 10 years ago was really like when the track guy, you know, became a thing, a big thing in our, in our writing world. And I joke that I don't know that I would have had success before the track guy revolution, because I learned that I was a better writer in the room when I wasn't playing piano anymore. Why? The very first, um, I think that I, there's usually more chords to go around than there are words and lyrics in a room, from what I have found. Um, There aren't as many, I don't think, and I could be wrong, but what I've found is that there are less top liners, less idea, concept, lyric people to go around than there are people that play chords and have melody and make tracks
0: i've i've heard that from other writers on the podcast amy mayo has said that uh liz rose has talked about that and and how having writing skills uh because neither one of them, both of them admit they they don't play music uh but being able to write being able to to get those lyrics out is is hugely valuable when you're in that room in that moment
1: yeah i mean it's no secret that nashville has the best players in the world and that that runs the gamut from studio musicians down to songwriters. I mean, I can throw a rock in any direction and hit someone that is a great guitar player that can come up with a great progression um, or a really cool musical hook, but it's a lot harder for me at least to find another top liner um, to write with. And, you know, it's funny to even think that I was known as a piano player first, because that's really how I, that was my entry into music but i do, i truly think that i contribute the most to a song when i am idea and lyric first and not having to think about the chords <laughs> and the music piece
0: right another thing that uh, that you said that i think is important for maybe young aspiring songwriters who might be listening today is you, you are you call yourself you and your husband call yourselves lunch pail songwriters and it is a <laughs> it's a 9 to 5 job and one of the things that you said is You can't wait for inspiration. It's not that romantic image of you know being inspired by, you know, a a windy day on a bluff over the ocean or something like that. You've got to you got to grind.
1: Hmm. Yeah. Some. You know. In in all the years now that I've written, I've seen I've seen a lot of really more days actually where we've written our way into a moment of inspiration. As as opposed to being inspired and then writing. Um, and honestly, like, experientially, is that a word? Experientially, like, that's... Works for me. That's, from an experience standpoint, at the end of my life, those are the moments that are magic to me as a songwriter is is when I'm like, what just happened? How did that happen, you know? Like, how did we just, like, stumble, someone accidentally mumbled something that sounded like three other words and it ended up being an idea. And then the song just fell out in 20 minutes and now it's on the radio, like those kind of situations. Um, those situations are more likely to happen if you show up every day and make yourself available.
0: Um, Can you give me an those. example of uh, of one of those songs that just kind of, you don't know where it came from, but it just, boom, there it was.
1: Uh, yeah. I mean, honestly, like for me, most of the good ones are, um, boy, which is probably one of my top. Yeah. Probably one of my top three most sacred creations in my life for me personally. Um, was that way I was writing with John Knight, who I don't know if you've had him on here, but he's a great one. If you ever want to have him on here, but he, he and I were we went way back and we struggled together for a lot of years in the beginning. And, um, and we were writing right before I had my son, it was my last day on the books before I was going to have my, my second child, my, our son. And I threw out a bunch of ideas, you know, like a prepared ideas and nothing was really sticking. And it was just the two of us. And he, uh, we wrote, we were us together. It was like our first, I think it was our first number one hit together. And so um, we got tattoos and like, we're like brother and sister close. (laughs) And so it was just really comfortable. It was just really comfortable that day. Um, Again, when you're really close with someone and you have that rapport, I think you're also more likely for some magic to happen because there's like an intimacy, you know, to it. But we were just talking and we just kept, he was really, nothing was really sticking. And he just said, he just said something like, let's just write a song to your boy. Like you're about to have a boy. Let's write a song to your boy. He's like, I've got it, you know, and we, we wrote that song almost like a diary entry, like first word, the last word, chronological order. Um, Chronologically, like, which is not typically how songs are written. Usually like scan out the song and have the hook and kind of do like an architect you kind of architect the song out and then you go back and write the lyrics cause you need to know what the idea is and how you're going to organize the song.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But we, that was just a stream of consciousness, like tears coming out my eyes, very hormonal. Um, and didn't even really mean to make it all land the way that it did, like to have boy land at the end of the chorus, the way that it does, like mm-hmm. you're always going to be a boy. Like I never planned on that. I was just trying to write a song that I would, like a little lullaby that I was something I wanted to say to him, and I think you know that was what. And then we walked out of the room and we were like, Wow, I think that's I don't think that that's just special to us, I think that's a really good song.
4: Boy, you're gonna know it all, you'll think you're 10 feet tall, run like you're bulletproof, you total a car, too. Boy. You're gonna hate this town I wish you could burn it down That fire in your eyes Is 20 counties wide But boy You're gonna love 17 And boy You'll do some stupid things You're gonna drive and kiss And throw a punch And grow up way too fast You're gonna drop the ball Hit the wall And break some hearts like glass I know you will Cause you're a part of me And a part of you Who will always be A boy gonna be so stubborn you get that from your mother I already see it now you not for down Boy, be a small
1: town
4: night
1: and we both said like man you know who would be our number one to sing this? I would love to hear Lee Bryce's voice on this and it was a couple years later that it finally came out but it ended up being Lee Bryce and what's crazy about that song is you know, I was still pregnant. I had not seen my son's face. I didn't know his personality or anything about him. And everything about that song, I swear, I manifested my son. I mean, everything about that song is like has come true. Wow. So. So yeah it was pretty pretty wild, pretty wicked to like look like when he 's like two three years old and it 's on the radio and he 's in the back seat in the car seat singing it and going like, "Wow, we wrote this before you like <laughs> before we saw your face, and now it just completely resonates so that was one
0: I do have a question about a song that maybe isn 't as well known, and to me, it speaks to um your versatility as a writer because you can write very traditional. Country music, and you also write very cutting edge, contemporary, almost borderline sort of rap R and B country songs, um, like Walker Hayes' "Halloween." Um, I love that song. There is a line in there that blew me away. I love you for being somebody I'm not ashamed to introduce my skeletons to. That is an unbelievably cool line.
2: Oh,
1: thank you. Gosh, that's such a. That's one of those that just feels. You know, there's a lot of different ways you get rewarded as a songwriter, right? You know, like some of it's it pays your bills. Some of it's you get to hear. It could be like hear a stadium, sing your words back. Um, But some songs are rewarding just in the fact that you get to to have that song in your life um, for the rest of your life. And I think that that song is just something, a song that like, I'm just so proud to have my name on on it. Um, And Walker is... I give Walker all the credit on that song because he—the way his brain works—is like like no other writer I've ever worked with, um, and I think he's one of the like most underrated gems in our writing community. Um, he has such a quirky um, style, but the way that he concepts songs is so sophisticated and complex and advanced. And honestly, it goes over some people's heads because people—we're just not used to certain things being that good and i think i think um i mean i may have come up with um who knows i may have come up with that line he may have come up with that line but he had he had laid the groundwork for the concept so much that we couldn't have we couldn't have failed
4: Before I even learned to play a note, I was on stage. Mastering the art of selling myself at a young age. Fear and insecurity drove me like a Maserati. High school was like showing up at a costume party. I was a comedian, an athlete, a golden boy, a black sheep. Whatever I had to be to make the world throw candy at me. And college was the same act, different play. It was October 31st every day. And the real world was an all too familiar street. Another trick, another treat. Then I knocked, knocked. Knocked on your door Every mask I ever wore Shattered like glass on the floor And it was like
3: Halloween ended.
4: But what would it change if I knew? Maybe my parents messed up, but hey, they're just dressed up kids, too. Maybe I guess what I'm trying to say is I love you. For being somebody I'm not ashamed to introduce my skeletons to. I still put on my Superman cape and hide in it. But when I'm with you, it comes untied for a minute. Hits the ground
0: in the shadow of your skin. Knowing his story, uh, the song is just, it's really personal. Is it tough sometimes to write with somebody who's trying to almost be cathartic on their end?
1: I mean, it can be sometimes. I think sometimes I wrestle with, you know, do you do what's best for the song or do you do what's best for the human? Because sometimes, you know, sometimes it is cathartic. It's therapeutic for an artist. It's important for them to feel that if they got married on in June, that that's what the song says. But if you need to rhyme with February would be what rhymed. <laughs> <laughs> and it made it all like phonetically roll off the tongue better and it matched the phrasing. Like there's the, there's that moment where you're really wrestling. You're like, Oh, but it would sound so much better if you said that. So I think it just depends on the person. Um, but I think with someone like Walker specifically, since we're talking about him, I do think that I would err on the side of what, what is most personal for him because that is his, such a big piece of his style he doesn't sing about things vaguely. He sings about things in a very detailed way, and that's what makes him special. So I think making something vague for him feels like it's not him anymore. But other artists, I can you can argue that it's, it's not going to make a difference, whether you say Red Truck or Blue Truck. That's not what makes that artist that artist.
0: Right, right. Um, with the time that we have left, I'm going to throw out uh, the names of some of the songs that you've talked about a lot in your in your career, but... Um, I want to get just your, your brief kind of uh, thoughts on each one of them and, and how they came to be. We have got three or four uh, top Bill songs here. Um, okay. And I'm going to start with one. Maybe you don't get hit with as much, but I thought it was one of the most powerfully written and well-sung country songs of the last few years, and that's Homecoming Queen.
2: Oh,
1: thank you for saying that because, goodness, I love that song. Um, I'm so proud of that one. You know, when we wrote that song, I knew that it was going to be, it meant so much to us as writers. And that was one that just fell out, Um, fell out on the bus in the middle of somewhere in the Midwest out on the road with Kelsey. And, um, and I, I got to be honest, like, I don't want to make it about me because this is Kelsey's song. But this song was something that really resonated with me personally, too. I was the homecoming queen in my high school I was, I do, ha, at a younger age, I did struggle with trying to, you know, be too performance driven and not as vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And like, I feel like I've grown a lot as I've gotten older to where I am a more vulnerable, softer version of myself and I'm not afraid to show my imperfections. And so I, I am just so proud that that song is out there. And I think, you know, it sounds cheesy, but as a mom, it's like, that's just stuff that I want. I want my daughter to be able to listen to on country radio too. I love it all. I love the the party songs out in the country, and I get the biggest kick writing those songs too. But man, it's I that song just felt. I, to be honest, I'm I was disappointed that country radio didn't make that a bigger hit than what it was. But I think that it made an impact on a human level just as in, in just the same way, whether it went to whatever it went to on the charts or number one. I don't, I don't think anyone outside of Nashville didn't feel like it was an impactful song.
3: Hey, homecoming queen, why do you lie when somebody's mean? Where do you hide? Do people assume you're always all right? Been so good at smiling most of your life. Look down good in the dress Zipping up the mess Dancing with your best foot forward Does it get hard To have to play the part Nobody's feeling sorry for you But what if I told you The world wouldn't end If you started showing What's under your skin What if you
0: like that are important there need to be songs like that in the world like you said i I love a good party anthem i've said that before on this podcast but i also love songs and when i was a kid music was how i figured out life you know and and there were Mm -hmm. you know songs that were written where i'd go i recognize myself or i recognize my predicament and all of a sudden you know it's a cliche but i wasn't alone in the world anymore and you know if if that artist was able to get through it i can too and to me, homecoming queen is that type of a song.
1: Well, thank you, and I love I love to hear that. I mean, don't take this the wrong way, but I love to hear that from a man too, because I thought that that was such a, you know, feminine slanted song. That I, I'm glad that it that it to know that it transcended just females, because the I, the concept isn't isn't based on a gender or anything, but it's it's more just about human nature and um, yeah. I uh Man, I love that song so much. That song went platinum, you know, and it's something that people don't really talk about. People don't realize that like sometimes the song will go number one, but it won't sell. And then sometimes the song won't go number one and it will really sell.
2: Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. Um, and I've had that experience enough now with other songs, for instance, like God Made Girls went gold and was wasn't on the radio that much. Love Triangle did well. Like, in terms of sales. And um, so I I think I've opened my mind to having different kinds of goals for my songs than just being a number one on radio.
0: Well, and that you just, uh, I'm sorry to go down a a side path, but um, does, does digital music being available digitally, does that help that out? Like homecoming queen didn't get the airplay that maybe it should have, but any young person, any person who identified with that song who loved it can immediately go to you know, a platform and and buy it for 99 cents or whatever.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. And I think that, I think we get to see some more real, one one great thing about like the DSPs, the digital services is that, um, or the platforms is that those are real numbers. Like someone is really clicking on that. Like you can't, you know, like, and you can really, you get to see like the longevity of a song. Years later, people are still coming back and listening to certain songs. Um, and I am a radio junkie, like country radio is the reason why I have a relationship with country music. I grew up out in the middle of nowhere in Kansas. We didn't, we barely had CMT, you know, like we barely had cable (laughs) and country radio was like Was like what let me, what got me to Nashville. And I still listen, even with all the different platforms, I still, when I, you know, we're living in Kansas right now. I don't know if Rodney shared that with you on his podcast, but I drive around and listen to FM radio like it's still my number one, you know, Mm -hmm. because there really is nothing like hearing your song on the radio. But there is a different trajectory for songs now and a different kind of way to to see, like, what do people really want to listen to three years later?
2: Right. You know, and
1: you can see that on some of the DSPs. Not to go down into the the weeds of music <laughs> business talk, but.
0: No, but it's important that, uh, especially, again, if you're a young singer-songwriter listening to this, that stuff you need to know. All right, we're going to swing the pendulum uh, completely opposite direction. All the pretty girls.
1: Ah. Uh, um, that was one of those just, like, to be honest, like just another day at work kind of days. Hmm. I don't remember there being anything um, that felt, and I don't mean this in a bad way, but I didn't. I didn't feel like there was anything magical about that day. I felt like I was. I loved the song, but we wrote that song on piano with Tommy Lee James and Josh Osborne. So we wrote it on piano, and it was cool. It felt like, it felt a lot like Small Town Saturday Night, the old Hell Kitchen song, yeah, like yeah. when we were writing it, and. Um, You know, and it was whatever day it was, you know, we write every day. So like we wake up the next day, go write another song and another song. And by the time that song got demoed a few weeks later, I'd probably written 10 more songs. And then it went on hold and Kenny cut it immediately. So it was just kind of like, it was a little bit like out of my mind. I wasn't quite, you know, some songs, some songs you get really invested in their journey because the journey is a long time. Like, say someone put the song on, you know, Blake Shelton or Morgan Wallen or somebody put this, one of your songs on hold. It could be on hold for six months, a year, and you're just waiting, waiting, waiting for them to cut.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And then you're waiting, waiting, waiting to see the track list. And that song got cut right before he was, right as he was finishing up his album. And when I got to hear the cut, because we wrote it on piano, when it sounded like a rock song. And I was like, it was so fabulous to get to hear it it felt like i was hearing it for the first time
4: all the pretty girls said pick me up at eight all the pretty girls said i'm going to la all the pretty girls said i hate my hair Just got paid All the lost boys out
1: oh and also like kenny's one of those people that you know he's he's one of those that i was a true fan of i went to fanfare when i was 14 and got his autograph and it was almost 20 years it was like it was the 20 year of me going to nashville for the first time with my mom and going to fanfare when he put that song out and i just and i was like wow like really what a testament to his career because who ha who gets to have a relevant career that long not very many people and to get to have a cut by someone that you grew up a true fan of and like waiting in line to get their autographs it just hits different I mean I love you know like I I love writing with all these new artists and, and that's fulfilling in its own way but to have you know to have a cut by somebody that you grew up a, a real fan of is something. And the last remaining one that I have that I really, really want, I really, really want a Tim McGraw cut. I've never had a McGraw cut, and he is one of those, you know. For me, it was Kenny, Keith, and Tim. <laughs> but I, I, I need Tim, and I, I man, I just keep striking out on every record. So, Tim, if you're out there, <laughs> please listen to my songs. <laughs>
0: yeah i mean you've got a pretty good resume please give me a chance (laughs) all right last song just i I love uh from the first time i heard it just the 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 take on uh your dan and shay smash tequila uh where did that idea come from was that another just another day in the songwriting room or did you know that song was going to be special
1: um okay unique things about that day one, we were supposed to be writing with Shay, Dan, and Shay, and Shay had to cancel for a family something, a doctor's appointment or something. And so I think we we almost didn't write because we were like, should we still write, you know? And we showed up anyway, which is a testament to show up. You never know. Mm-hmm. And uh, the idea came from Jordan Reynolds, and he had been to a, like a whiskey tasting or something or tequila tasting a few days before and had overheard a buddy of his say, say like, well, when I taste tequila, I think that, or I feel this, or I, you know, it tastes like this or whatever. And he just wrote down huh. the title when I taste tequila and brought that in and threw that out to us. And the actual, the original working title was when I taste tequila. And it was right before the single came out or not too long before that, um, my well, dad recorded it and it was and we found out it was going to be a single And Dan texted us and said You know, I think we're just going to call it tequila And I was like, that is way cooler Thank you so much <laughs> I can still shut down
4: the party I can hang with anybody I can drink whiskey and red wine Champagne all night Sketch on the rocks and I'm fine, I'm fine. But when I taste tequila, baby, I still see you. Cutting up the floor a sorority t-shirt, the same one you wore when we were. Sky high in Colorado, your lips pressed against the bottle. Slamming on a Bible, baby, I'd never leave you. I remember how bad.
0: Nicole, thank you so much for taking time. You've given me more time than I expected uh, or deserve, and it's, it's been fun to talk to you.
1: Well, you know what? I love anybody that loves a songwriter, so thank you for having me.
0: <laughs> awesome. Thank you.
4: I can show up to the same hear the same songs in Maybe a memory, it only hits me this hard.
0: And that will do it for this month's episode of Write Your Song. Again, if you like it, give it a review and share it. Follow me at KNCI Tom on Twitter for podcast updates. Big thanks again to Nicole Galleon for joining me. And next month, a songwriter who's finally stepping out as a performer, too. And his personal style of country is entirely different than what he writes for others. I got everything I need and nothing
4: that I don't own. Ever since you- we just trying to catch a good time. Even
0: if it takes all night. Hear why Nico Moon thinks what he's doing isn't just country, it's essential to country music's growth. Next month on yeah, Write we're You a Song. Get
4: on them guitars just right. Everybody singing Dixie Land of Light. Like a barber on a wet line. we just trying to catch a good time. Way down here, we all got that southern draw. We take our time when we talk, hey y'all. Yeah,
2: don't take much.